Luke 4. Luke 4. So uh, we're going to begin in verse 14. And, uh, and what, what we're going to see happening here in Luke chapter 4 is Jesus brings good news to troubled people. And Jesus brings troubling news to good people. The news that Jesus brings is good news for troubled people, and it's troubling news for good people, at least for people that, that, that think that they're good. The, the, Jesus is going to come to his hometown, and he's going to preach this, this message of, of uh, liberty to captives and good news for the poor, and, and people, uh, people that are, are going to be very, very troubled by this message of Jesus that he brings. He, he, he brings uh, good news for troubled people and troubling news for good people, and sometimes what we need is God to comfort us, and sometimes what we deeply need is for God to trouble us. And the Spirit of God does both. Jesus does both. Jesus will comfort us in our deep need, and He will also trouble us when we need to be troubled. And sometimes we think that the troubles in our life are, are always from the devil, um, and, and, and sometimes, it's, it's, sometimes Jesus stirs the waters um, because the gospel brings its good news for the troubled. The gospel meets us in our place of deep need. And the gospel is troubling news for the good. Okay, and so it's it's uh, as we dive into this passage, a couple things I want to notice. Uh, Luke four fourteen, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. Now, where does Jesus return from? He's what just happened was Jesus has been in the wilderness. Remember, forty days fasting, and then he undergoes this extreme. Uh, temptation, the devil just in his face throwing everything at Jesus, every temptation he can throw at Jesus, trying to get Jesus derailed, trying to derail Jesus from his ultimate foundation, his ultimate uh, destination, his ultimate purpose. And, uh, and we're told at the beginning of Luke 4, when Jesus goes into the wilderness, that Jesus is led by the Spirit. And now that Jesus comes out of the wilderness, out of this time of testing, we're told that Jesus is full of the Spirit. It's really important for, for Luke for us to see that Jesus operates in the power of the Spirit of God. And as we turn to the other book that, that Luke wrote, uh, the book of Acts, it's really important for Luke to see, uh, for us to see that the early church operated in the power of the Spirit of God. That we have this Spirit available to us to lead us, to guide us, to strengthen us, to overpower us, to, to fill us. And that, and that Jesus operates in the power of the Spirit. So if Jesus operates in the power of the Spirit, how much more do I need to operate in the power of the Spirit of God? The Spirit of God is available to us. And so... Um, Luke 4, 14, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Now, Galilee is his home region. That's his home area. And a report about him went through all the surrounding uh, country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Now, word about Jesus is already starting to spread. He's got a, he's got a reputation that's already uh, picking up. There's a buzz about Jesus, okay? People are buzzing about him and talking about him. And word is spreading about him. And notice that we're told here that he's teaching in different synagogues, and he's being glorified by all. That word glorified, he's being praised, he's being honored, he's being glorified by all. People are saying, man, this Jesus is amazing. And, and Jesus, man, that was a great word you brought. And they're saying all these amazing things to him and about him. And then what we're going to see, this passage is going to close with the people that have been glorifying him, taking him up on a high cliff and wanting to throw him down to his death. Okay, And there, there's a very frightening truth here that I'd really like for us to see. And that frightening truth is that it's possible to speak highly of Jesus with our lips, but to oppose him in our hearts. It's very possible to speak highly of Jesus with our lips, 
but our, our hearts actually be far from Him. Our hearts actually um, uh, be in opposition to Him. And, and, and it's easy uh, to say, oh, you know, I want Jesus to do all this and that. And then when Jesus starts moving in our lives, we say, whoa, I, I really didn't want you to do any of that stuff. It's possible to speak highly of Jesus with our lips, but to actually oppose his work in our hearts. And, and there's been times in my life that I've opposed the work that Jesus was wanting to do in and through and around me. And I think if we're honest, all of us have been there. Uh, it's possible to speak highly of Jesus with our lips, but to oppose him with our hearts. And so, verse 16, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. Now, Jesus comes to Nazareth. This is his hometown, okay? And so, uh, and so it's like maybe some of you know this feeling of maybe you, you were raised in Sweetwater, maybe you moved away, or Roscoe, and then, and then you come back uh, home. And that can be an odd thing to come back home. And, and Jesus comes back to his hometown, and this is where he'd raised up, probably the synagogue that he had been raised up going to. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. Now, as was his custom, that's really important. Jesus goes to the synagogue, the gathering of the Jewish uh, people, wherever he's at, whatever he's doing, whatever town or village he's in, he would go to the local synagogue on the Sabbath day. And we see him doing that throughout his ministry. But here we're told this was the customary thing for him to do. This is part of the fabric of Jesus' life was to go to synagogue. Now, that's pretty humbling if you think about it. Did Jesus need to go to the synagogue and hear about God? Um, if you, it's kind of like him being baptized, like we saw a couple of weeks ago. There's this deep humility in Jesus to identify with us to the degree that he models for us uh, these, these practices that are so important. Uh, Jesus could have said, you know what, I'm the Messiah. I am the Word made flesh. I really don't want to hear what this guy has to say about me. You know, uh, have you ever sat through a sermon and you've thought, man, this guy is just, he, he is just needs a lot of help. Uh, this, when's this sermon ever going to end? I see some people like, yeah, every, yeah, actually, every week I do that. No, and, and uh, you ever sit through a sermon and you're like, man, this guy's off the, uh, you know, he, he's off the map. I mean, he doesn't even know what he's talking about. And this is terrible. And when, when's this going to end? And, 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 and can you imagine being the word made flesh? Can you imagine being Jesus, the Messiah? Can you imagine being him and sitting in a, in a synagogue service, hearing people explain God? I mean, that would be a weird thing, wouldn't it? And, and yet the humility of the Son of God, that every week, week after week, his whole life, he's going to synagogue and he's modeling for us that community matters. He's modeling for us that, that being part of this biblical community is so vitally important, even when the people there aren't perfect and don't get it right all the time. Um, so this is his custom to go to, the, to go to the synagogue. On the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. So the, 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 the rulers or the leaders or the elders of the synagogue could choose uh, whoever they thought was okay to preach. And so this day they say, Jesus, will you stand up to preach? And so he gets up, and, and they hand him the scroll. Now typically what would happen is there would be an opening like, welcome and praise and blessing and thanksgiving time. And then somebody would read from the law. Somebody would read from the prophets. And so Jesus gets up to read the, from the prophets and they hand him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Don't know if he was supposed to, if he was asked to read Isaiah 61 or if that's what he just chose to read. But uh, verse 17, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And he's about to read from Isaiah chapter 61, this very powerful passage from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim liberty to captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And I, I always kind of thought that, that uh, he like, went back to his seat and sat down. But see, in these days, most likely you would stand to read the scripture and then the preacher would sit down to give his sermon. And so he doesn't probably go back to his seat to sit down. He sits down up at the front. And now what we're about to see is this is the sermon that he gives. This is the commentary that he gives on the scripture. Verse 21, and began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. That's just, now, before you start getting ideas that my sentences should be one, or my sermon should be one sentence long and, and this brief, this is probably, there's some evidence that this is, the, this is the big idea of his sermon, okay? This is the main idea of his sermon. He says other things, okay? And then uh, beyond that, he preaches a sermon on the mount, which is quite a bit longer, okay? So not all sermons have to be short. But, but, but the, the idea of his sermon, his commentary is, this day has arrived. Man, this messianic age that we've all been hoping and looking and praying for, all these prophecies and promises of the story, man, they've come to fruition. They're here and, and now, and today is the day. And people are still kind of with them at this point. Verse 22, all spoke well of him and marvel at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they're saying, is this not Joseph's son? Wow, that he's come a long way. I mean, I remember him. And, and there's just these gracious and authoritative words coming from his mouth. And people are still marveling. People are still astonished. It's possible to be astonished at Jesus and yet still oppose him in our heart. And so let's go back and look at the different categories of people that Jesus says he's come to serve, that the gospel is good news for, okay? He says, I've come uh, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Let me just take a minute and try to unpack this word anointed a little bit. Can I do that? Because a lot of times I feel like we misuse this word anointed. He says, the spirit of God is upon me. He has anointed me to preach the gospel. Anointed or anoint is the word where we get the word Christ, Christos. That uh, means to be anointed. Jesus is the anointed one. And anointing is, uh, well, in the first service, we prayed over Ryan and we anointed him with, uh, with oil. Um, but, but anointing in, in, this, in this idea is to be anointed with oil or, uh, and, 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 and set apart as a king or as a priest or as a prophet. Or in this case, that Isaiah 61 is talking about, he's anointed as the Messiah, okay? He's set apart as the Messiah. He is, and here's what I want us to get, Jesus is the anointed one. He is capital A anointed. And sometimes we get to thinking that among us, among the body of Christ, that there's people that are kind of more anointed or like extra anointed people. And often that's a person that knows how to talk. And we say, that guy can talk. He can string a couple sentences together. He's anointed. And, and in church, we value people that know how to talk to such a degree that if somebody can string a paragraph together, we start thinking they can do all kinds of stuff that maybe they can't do. I was 20 years old and put in charge of building a building. I had never built a doghouse before, but I could talk. And so people assumed that I could do things that I really had no capacity to do. Okay? And so what, what, what sometimes we do is we make this caste system of these people, this guy over here is really anointed. But what we need to keep in mind is Jesus is capital A anointed. Jesus is the anointed one. And if you're in Christ, here's where it gets really cool. If you're in Christ, you are anointed one. You are an anointed one because you're in him. And so Jesus is the capital A anointed one, and we are all 
little a anointed ones. And we all share in this ministry that he lays out here. And so, and so often we say, well, that person's anointed. What we're saying is, I'm going to watch them do ministry. But in Christ, every person in Christ is anointed to bring good news to the gospel. Every person in Christ is anointed to proclaim liberty to captives. In the favorable year of the Lord, you have been anointed in Christ as a member of the body of Christ to turn this world upside down. That's good news, isn't it? Tell your neighbor to tell their face that that's good news, okay? That Jesus is capital A anointed, and in him we're little a anointed. Let's not create a caste system in the body of Christ that's probably non-existent, okay? And so his custom, he goes to the synagogue, he's reading this passage, the Spirit of God is upon me, he's anointed me. What's the Spirit of God anointed Jesus to do to proclaim or to preach or to announce good news to who? Good news to the poor. The poor. Now the gospel is good news to the poor, but good news to the poor, good news to the powerless sounds an awful lot like bad news to the powerful. Good news to the powerless sounds an awful lot like bad news to the powerful. And Jesus, when he says, I'm, I'm here to proclaim good news to the poor, uh, well, a lot of times we spiritualize this and we need to spiritualize it. He's talking about people that are spiritually bankrupt. He's talking to people that are, that are spiritually just worn out. He's talking to people that have nothing to give spiritually. But he's also talking to people that are under the boot heel of Rome. He's talking to people that are economically marginalized and economically poor. He's talking to people that are poor in any kind of way, physically, material, materially, economically, socially, uh, mentally, spiritually. He's talking to people that are poor because it's in our poverty, it's in our deep need that we see our need for Jesus. And the beggar is the one that sees the gospel as good news because he desperately needs it. And the one that maybe is full doesn't see my need for the gospel. The gospel is good news to the poor. It's good news for everybody, but it's the poor spiritually, emotionally, physically, uh, materially. It's the poor one, the weak one that sees the need for the good news. And then he says, uh, he sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Captives. That word captive can mean or can be translated as prisoners of war. He, he, he says, I've been sent to announce that you can be free. And that word liberty, you know, it wasn't just a great, uh, you know, that word liberty, that song liberty was saying a great biblical song. And Jesus said, I've come to proclaim liberty, freedom. And that word translated liberty is also the word that's translated often forgiveness. Interesting thing here, both places, liberty to the captives and liberty to those who are oppressed, that word liberty can be translated as forgiveness. So let's hang with that in our mind for a second. Who's a captive? You know, if I'm a captive, I'm, I'm somebody that's, uh, uh, that, that's a, you know, again, another word for that would be prisoner of war. And we can see things around us that take people captive, things like drugs that take people captive. Uh, addiction takes people captive. We can think of a lot of, uh, you know, ambition sometimes take, takes people captive. But, you know, uh, uh, good things can take us captive. And Jesus was talking to a room full of captives, but they didn't know they were captives. And, you know, if I don't know I'm a captive, I'm not going to cry out for freedom. And Jesus is speaking to people that are captivated by religion. And they're captivated by the law. And they're looking at the one that all of their religion and all of their law pointed to, and they don't even recognize him because they're captives and they don't know they're captives. And then Jesus says, I've come uh, to proclaim recovery of sight to the blind. Jesus, Jesus came to minister to and heal physical, physically blind people. And we have a ministry to those that are physically impaired or, 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 or face physical challenges. But he also came uh, to, pro- to proclaim healing to the spiritually blind. 
And the difference between a physically blind person and a spiritually blind person, a physically blind person knows they're blind. A physically blind person knows they can't see. A spiritually blind person thinks they're the only person that can see. A spiritually blind person thinks everybody else is the one that's blind. And Jesus, again, is talking to a room of good people that have studied the Scripture, that have longed for the Messiah, and they're blind, and they don't know they're blind. And then he says, I've come to, to proclaim liberty to those who are oppressed. Liberty, that same word, liberty, forgiveness, release to those who are oppressed. Um, liberty or forgiveness, we're all held captive by or oppressed by, um, in some sense or other, uh, either the shame of our own sin. A lot of us spend our whole lives or most of our lives captive to the shame of our sin. And a lot of us are captive to the pain and the sting of other people's sin. And so maybe we're in the room today and we say, I can't find freedom in Christ because I have done this. And maybe we're in the room today and we're saying, I can't find freedom in Christ because somebody else has done this. See, captive people, captive and oppressed, what's the difference? Maybe there's no difference, but maybe people that become captive to addiction become captive to religion, people that become captive to anything end up oppressing and abusing and harming other people. And some of us are saying, I'm over here and I've, I've been an oppressor, I've been an abuser, I've been a harmer, I've hurt people and, and I can't move forward, I can't find freedom. And some of us are over here and we're saying, I have been harmed, I have been hurt. And most of us, if we're honest, are both. We have hurt people. We have harmed people. And we have been deeply harmed by people. And the key for both of us, for wherever we are, and again, most of us are in both places, is that we need that redeeming and that forgiving and that liberating freedom that comes from the good news, that God can break through my shame and forgive me, and God can work His forgiveness through me to other people. It's freeing to receive His forgiveness from me, and to extend His forgiveness from God through me to others. So He comes to speak to the poor, to minister to the poor, the captives, the blind, the oppressed, those that are those things spiritually and material, materially. And He's come to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, the year of the Lord's favor. God's not mad. God loves you. God's favor is upon you. And He sent you and me to these very same people. See, Jesus didn't come and do all this and minister to the poor and the oppressed so that we could say, great job doing that, Jesus. He came and the very, his mission is now your mission. His mission is now my mission. His mission is now the church's mission. As the Father sent him, so he sends us. And so, now things are, are still okay. People are still tracking with Jesus. Let's dive back in uh, to verse 20, uh, 23. He then said to them, Doubtless you will say, uh, now Mark, Matthew tell us that, that the people, after they say this is the carpenter's son, they start to take offense at him. Luke doesn't have that. Um, but in, in uh, verse 23, Jesus says, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. And the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. He says, in the days of Elijah, there were tons of widows in Israel that were suffering, but God sent Elijah to an outsider in that other country. 
And then there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. God sent Elisha to Naaman the Syrian, this wicked, uh, powerful uh, soldier, commander. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. That's when you know it's been a good sermon. That's when you know it's been good. Is people don't leave and say, that was a nice sermon, preacher. But they leave and they go, Ugh. I'd rather you leave mad than apathetic any day. I'd rather, I'd rather us leave overjoyed at the goodness of God. But people are mad. What pushed people over the edge? Well, they're hearing Jesus talk about this words of grace, and yeah. And they're hearing him talk about the, the messianic uh, day has arrived, yeah. But the two things that tip people over the edge, one, Jesus is saying that he himself is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of all the hopes and dreams and the promises of the Old Testament. Two, what tips people over the edge is he puts himself in the stream with Elijah and Elisha who have this pattern of taking the grace of God beyond us to them. Jesus says, I'm going to offer God's grace to outsiders like Elijah did and like Elisha did. And the people are mad. They're angry. And they, what we're going to see is they want to kill Jesus. You know, I've been in the church a long time, and I was, a, I, was a, I was a prodigal son, and I went pretty quickly from being the prodigal son to being the older brother. As, as much as God has saved me from and rescued me from, and as much as God has rescued all of us from, we still face this temptation to think that church is for good people who have their act together. Aren't we tempted to think that? Isn't that a temptation? And yet, nothing could be further from the truth. People are hostile to Jesus because he says God's grace is for those. God has this track record throughout the Old Testament and the New of rescuing all the wrong kinds of people. He has this track record of rescuing all the wrong kinds of people. And so Jesus was just opposed by the devil. Remember the devil took him up on a cliff and said, jump off, throw yourself off, and let the angels uh, save you. What happens next Everybody in the synagogue is filled with wrath. Verse 29, they rose up. They drove him out of the town. That's how you know it's really been a good sermon, okay? They drove him out of the town. They brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down off the cliff. Now, there's times that maybe you wanted to kill the preacher, but this is, this is pretty extreme, okay? They take him up to the cliff, and they're going to throw him off the cliff. Now, who, who just had... A couple of people laughed kind of enthusiastically on that, by the way. Um, who, who just had Jesus up on a cliff and said, the devil did. And now it's his very own friends from church that have him up on the cliff, putting him in the same position the devil put him in. Now here's the thing. Here's a thing. All of us individually and together have this temptation to become satanic. I'm not talking about being Satan worshipers and, you know, doing all that kind of... I'm talking about there's a bent in me individually, and there's a bent in us together. I, I shared earlier this week, there was uh, years ago, uh, I was involved in a building project, and we went to pick up a bunch of lumber, and all the lumber was bent and cupped and warped, hard to work with. And that's an example of what it means to be part of the body of Christ. We're bent. We're warped. Sometimes we're hard to work with. And yet we need each other when we're being built together into the house where God himself wants to dwell. Okay? And so uh, 
individually and collectively, we can easily bend towards opposing Jesus in a satanic kind of way. Jesus' best friend, Peter, says, you're never going to go to a cross. And what does Jesus say to him? Get thee behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. I want to ask you, do you have a friend that can tell you you're acting kind of like Satan right now? Do you have a friend that you, maybe we want to give permission to somebody in your life? Uh, I told the first service, husbands, you might want to get permission from your wives twice before you say this to them. But, it, but get permission from somebody, a friend, somebody you're walking with that can say to you, kind of acting like the devil right now. Jesus was that kind of friend to Peter. We're bent. Individually we're bent and together we're bent. And this good, hear, hear me, this room full of good godly people that love God. They wanted to throw Jesus off a cliff. That still happens in church. Jesus still gets thrown out of church. They've been, bear with me, they've been praying for Jesus. They've been pouring over the Scriptures years, decades, centuries, millennia. It's possible to pray for something for years and reject it when it comes. Isn't that scary? That's really scary. And there's got to be this humility in me and this humility in you and this humility in us that the times that I've made the biggest messes have been the times that I was sure I had everything figured out. There's got to be this humility that there's part of me that i got to say, search me, oh God, search my heart because there's something bent in me. There's something warped in me. And i got to be aware that in and of myself, I might want to throw Jesus off the cliff. Even us together in our best uh, our best med plans might be throwing Jesus off the cliff. They've prayed for years and they don't recognize Jesus, the answer to their prayer, when He's standing right in front of them. That ought to give all of us humility. That ought to give all of us this sense of wow. Jesus responds to them like He responded to the devil. He's, he's rooted in God's Word. And then... Uh, verse 30, passing through the mist, he went away. Some people kind of feel like Jesus maybe just teleports out of there. No, he, he, he confidently, I believe, he confidently looks them in the eye and he walks through them. Um, he's not taken in by them. Jesus spoke these words of grace for everybody. And the people that know the good news, the band's coming up to, to close us out. The people that know the good news, the people that know the good news and that are the most familiar with it are often those of us who miss it. Even as people, maybe we've been in church for a long time, it's possible for us to miss the gospel. And the gospel isn't something that I needed a long time ago to get my walk started with God and then now I don't need it anymore. I need the gospel as much today as I did uh, 20 years ago. You need the gospel as much today as you ever did. We need the good news that Jesus is Lord and that He meets us in our poverty and He sets captives free. We need that every second of our lives. I need the good news as much today as I ever did. And I need it every day. Jesus brings good news to the troubled people. And He brings troubling news to good people. And whether Jesus is is giving you comfort, or He's giving you trouble, or He's troubling you. He loves you. He loves you, and He's wanting to draw you in.